So really, thank you very much for, for tuning in. Hey, Morris, how you doing? Um, so Hello, you? great. So uh, I'm going to share my screen. You guys will let me know if you could see what I'm seeing. I have, uh, I think this is a really interesting um, set of ideas that is supposed to be going on here. Um, we're going to talk, I think, the beginning mainly about the ideas of psychedelic drugs on the one hand, but also different scientific experiments that people are doing in terms of connecting to God and whatever, whatever that means. How could you connect to God through a scientific experiment? And the reason why I want to talk about this is because uh, this last week's parashat, parashat Shemini, was all about the sin of the children of Aharon. Right, so the, everyone asks, what did they do wrong exactly? No one really knows exactly what they did wrong. I think the, the text of the Torah does make it pretty clear. And you know, maybe we'll start off with that. We'll just see exactly the way the Torah explains the sin of the children of Aharon. Right, so look at this. The children of Aharon, who were named Nadav and Avihu, each one took his fire pan, and they put fire in the fire pan. So the Torah is very clear about what they did wrong. They brought an ash zara, which means they brought a foreign fire. Hashem did not command them to bring this fire. So they thought that they could go and worship God through whatever means that they pleased. And they, it seemed like they, they overstepped their bounds. And then it says, right? Measure for measure, you bring a foreign fire, God's fire is going to consume you. And they die before God. So the question is now, if it's so clear in the text what they did wrong, why are there a few different opinions among the Hachamim? One says they were drunk, one says they, uh, you know, they, they brought the foreign fire. Another one will say a different thing. So... The question is, how could there be so many different interpretations of this one simple act? And I think what we're going to hopefully get through in this class is an explanation that there's something very deep going on behind the scenes that really helps you explain what was going through their heads, the heads of Nadav and Avihu when they decided to bring this fire on fire. So before we do that, I just want to give you a very brief overview. This shouldn't take more than 10 minutes. To talk about what's going on in today's you know, scientific world in terms of really exploring the concept of, of God and uh, understanding the idea of psychedelic drugs, which is a very interesting topic. All right, so, so let's dig into some of these quotes from some of these thinkers. So this woman, Jill Bolt-Taylor, she had a stroke. And the stroke that happened in her brain, a stroke is basically, there's two kinds of stroke. One kind of stroke is when the blood supply gets cut off to a certain por portion of your brain. Another kind of stroke is when uh, a blood vessel ruptures and the blood starts pouring into your brain. And that's going to produce all sor sort of different effects in your brain. And this woman, very interestingly, she was a neuroscientist who had a stroke. So while she was having the stroke, she was like able to figure out exactly which part of her brain was, was dysfunctional based on what she was feeling. And you might know that the left side of your brain is very good at, you know, picking things apart and analyzing things, while the right side of your brain is able to look at things and see the big picture, right? So look at, just listen to this quote that she says when she felt the, the stroke happening, the stroke attacked the left side of her brain, 
which means that the right side of her brain, the side of the brain that sees the big picture, and this is what many people see as, you know, part of the experience of God and one of these, uh, you know, supernal experiences is often what's going on in the right side of the brain. So you take away her left side of the brain, what does she say? I remember that first day of the stroke with, with terrific bittersweetness. In the absence of the normal functioning of my left orientation association area, which means her left side of her brain, my perception of my physical boundaries was no longer limited to where my skin met air. So she felt like her body wasn't the extent of who she was. She felt like she was transcending her body. I felt like a genie liberated from its bottle. The energy of my spirit seemed to flow like a great whale gliding through a sea of silent euphoria. So she felt something that you can't even put into words. This absence of physical boundary was one of glorious bliss. So she just felt amazing. Just simply from, and she has a very clever name to her book. The name of the book is My Stroke of Insight. She wrote an entire book based on her new way of living without a left-sided brain. And the brain is very plastic, so the, the right side of her brain was able to kind of take over certain functions. But we see that the human experience, when we're able to have these transcendent experiences, it, it very often lies in the right side of the brain. So that's just something to keep in mind. The next thing is a very interesting experiment. Um, any, any questions so far? Um, I just had a comment. Sure. The boundary uh, between her skin like, was not... Um, she wasn't like it wasn't the same anymore. It reminds me of when after anatomy made from the tree, they became aware of themselves as like within their skin. Beautiful, a hundred percent. That it, it's the left side of their brain. absolutely all of these experiences of like you know getting another level of spirituality. It could be seen in this kind of a thing, and it's funny because this is a stroke. You know, you would never think that a stroke, which is something we think of as bad, could produce something so positive. Right now, look at this. There's something called the God helmet. Somebody developed a helmet that you could kind of put onto your brain. And what it does is it, I'm not going to read every single word here, but it basically is able to send electrical impulses to a certain part of your brain uh, known as the temporal lobe. And these weak magnetic fields create the experience in the person that they're, they're, they say, oh my God, I feel God, I see God. And that's all just from stimulating parts of the brain. So if you're like me, you might be thinking like, hey, wait a second, Mike, you, you just started off your class with somebody who had a stroke and now somebody putting on a helmet and these two people and all these people are experiencing God. You know, my, I, I don't understand. I thought God is something that you work towards. I thought God is something that you build a relationship with, something that's a daily, you know, it, it could be a grind sometimes, but it's, it's the one that you connect to based on some amazing work that you put in throughout your entire life. What is going on here? So that's going to be kind of the theme of all of these sources in the beginning of the class is to try to see how do we relate to people with these kinds of experiences. So keep that in mind. The next source. Um, this is saying something from Jordan Peterson. A lot of these sources were inspired from a lecture from Jordan Peterson called The Phenomenology of the Divine. And he says as follows. One consequence is that if you have the mystical experience that's associated with psilocybin ingestion, if you're not sure what psilocybin is, psilocybin is the active component in magic mushrooms. So you might have heard of people taking magic mushrooms and they get this euphoric experience. So people who take mushrooms, what happens to them? You're liable to represent that to others and yourself, that experience, as one of the, one of the two or three most important experiences of your entire life. So many people 
who took mushrooms will talk about that experience and the euphoria of it and the wisdom that they gained as though this was in the top two or three experiences of their entire lives. So what does that mean? So that that would be at the same level as the birth of your child or your marriage, right? So getting married, having a child, it's you having a eating a, a mushroom is the same level. It's like it's almost mind-boggling that you could find all of this on the other side of a mushroom. It's almost absurd. It almost says something absurd about the human condition. What are we? We're just these. Are we just animals? We're just these animals that if we consume a fungus, then everything is great. What does this say about who we are? So let's say, assuming uh, that those were transcendent experiences, but that's how people describe them, that's very interesting in and of itself. So that's Jordan Peterson's idea. Another thing that he talks about is this guy named Roland Griffith. Roland Griffith did a lot of experiments on uh, magic mushrooms, also psilocybin is the name of it. And in part of these, ex uh, these experiments involved giving people with terminal cancer magic mushrooms. And when, when they gave them magic mushrooms, what happened? They had a mystical experience. The trait openness of the participants had increased one standard deviation, which is a tremendous amount. So basically, we have certain elements of our personality. One of them is openness. When you take magic mushrooms, apparently it changes who you are. You become a much more open person. You become less closed off to the world. You want to explore other people. You, you want to you know, open yourself to different experiences. And so it looked like one dose produced a permanent neurological and psychological transformation. This is not a joke. Whatever is inside of these mushrooms has very important implications for the human experience. You, you, there's no denying that. And I'm not trying to deny that, but you'll see what the point that I'm trying to make as we go along. And then just connected to that, also part of this guy's experiments, what does he say? The effects of psilocybin were studied in 51 cancer patients with life-threatening diagnoses. So think of a loved one that you have, God forbid, that has cancer. Symptoms of depression or anxiety. You can understand why people with cancer would have this tremendous depression. High-dose psilocybin produced large decreases in clinician and self-rated measures of depressed mood and anxiety along with increases in quality of life, life meaning optimism, and decreases in death anxiety. Basically, if you took this mushroom, you started feeling amazing. You, you stopped you, your, your level of depression and anxiety knowing that you're about to die decreased. And that's, that's a very powerful thing as well. I'm just trying to give you a sense of what... Th these things mean it's not just a hoax it's not just hippies these are things that are really at the cutting edge of science and at the cutting edge of studying what it means to be human and the human experience all right so the next thing psychiatrists studying lsd we're not going to read every single thing but basically this is trying to say it's not the same thing as schizophrenia schizophrenia is its own thing and there's different chemicals involved in the psychedelic experience. So you can't write off the psychedelic experience as simply, oh, this guy's just going crazy. It's the same thing as being schizophrenic. It's really not. And then you have this guy, Aldous Huxley. Aldous Huxley took something called mescaline. Mescaline cuts off the, the oxygen to certain parts of your brain. And it makes you, uh, similar to what we talked about in the stroke of insight with the woman Jill, it's the same idea. That if you cut off certain parts of the brain, the other parts of the brain really take over, like the right side of the brain. And look at the way he describes it. It's like we have to really, you know, investigate the human condition to the same degree that we investigate Earth and that we explore the Earth and the, the darkest parts of Africa. Right? He says, however lowly the work of the collector must be done before we can proceed to the higher scientific class of tasks. So whatever he's talking about, 
he's just completely blown away by his experience. And you, I listened to his when I was in Morocco. This is an amazing thing. I was in Morocco. I was walking along the beach, and I listened to his entire book called The Doors of Perception. And he brings you through his experience while on mescaline. He wrote down this book right after and partially during the experience of being on mescaline, on this psychoactive drug. And now here's the key to all the, the whole reason I brought you all this stuff and the connection to the parasha that we're going to read is this source H. So pay, pay close attention to this. This guy that we just mentioned, Aldous Huxley, was influenced to some degree by Carl Jung. Jung, was, he was a psychologist. He knew of Huxley's experiments and had commented of psychedelic use. And this is what Carl Jung said. Pay close attention. He said something like, Beware of wisdom that you did not earn. So Carl Jung is saying that, you know, th there's something very important about gaining wisdom in a certain way. Earning that wisdom through the daily grinds, you know, through certain experiences. But when you go from 0 to 60 in less than 3 seconds just by taking a mushroom... It, there's something off about that, according to him. There's something that goes on that... Oh, is there a password that I... that uh, Somebody's trying to get in with a password. Let's see. I'm not sure. You guys are able to get in without a password, correct? Yeah. Okay, so hopefully uh, people figure it out. Right, so so Carl Jung is talking about this experience. And he's saying, you know what? It's, it's not necessarily worth it. And he, he didn't say whether or not you should or shouldn't do it. He's just saying, listen, if you're going to do something like this, if you're going to take a mushroom, if you're going to take ayahuasca, whatever the drug you're going to take, be careful. Because whatever wisdom... Oh, I'm, I'm being told it won't let him in. Let's see. Um, Dad, you want to send Erwin the link? Okay, the say it again? Yeah, you have to give him the link, otherwise... I did give him the link, I don't know why. Fine, I'll email him. Okay, I'll great. Sorry about that. Um, okay. Right, so Carl Jung is talking about this idea, and what else is he saying? He's saying that there's, there's, it's a very, you know, so these are the thoughts of, uh, of Jordan Peterson regarding Carl Jung. He's saying... That's a very intelligent piece of advice. Beware of wisdom you did not earn. If you're interested in this sort of thing, he wrote this paper, right? And he's just a really smart guy. That's basically what he's saying. What it's about is the danger of what he called ego inflation. One of the things that can happen as a consequence of a revelatory experience is that the division between the individual ego and everything else starts to come apart. That's basically what... what uh, what Jordan Peterson is saying, and it's so hard to come up with a word that isn't somehow naive or cliche, to erase the relationship, the boundary between the specific consciousness of the ego and the more generalized consciousness as such is a dangerous thing to do because you can start to equate yourself, your, your specific self, with that more generalized consciousness as such. So he's saying there's a danger in that. You know, a lot of these people who have this psychedelic experience, they start, they start to, to walk around and say, I am God. I am a piece of the world. I am the universe. And when you start living that way, it's not necessarily going to produce the best results, as you can imagine. And maybe that has some kind of value to some small degree in certain ways, in certain experiences. But when your experience of life becomes that, there's some, there's, there might be a real problem. And Jung thought that, uh, about that as something akin to a psychotic inflation. So that's kind of what's going on here. And that's the, the introduction. And we don't have that much time, so... We'll run through 
what we can in terms of uh, last week's parasha. But before we do, before we discuss specifically what was going on, I want to talk with you about this um, this idea in Sepharia in the parasha. And, and uh, specifically, if you go back, we talked about Nadav and Avihu. Who were Nadav and Avihu? They were the children of Aharon. As we mentioned, they brought this foreign fire. Now, in order to understand the, the, the background of what they did, why they did what they did, we have to see the, one of the first times they're mentioned in the Torah. Let's see what happens. Hashem is telling Moshe Rabbeinu, you're going to have this amazing experience. You're going to go get the Torah. So look, the Torah completely emphasizes the idea that Nadav and Avihu are involved in this experience of going up the mountain of God, right? And as Hanambam says, it wasn't only climbing up Har Sinai, it was, of course, that. But in addition to that, it was, it was climbing up levels of Nevu'ah, levels of meditation, whatever you want to call it. These people were the select people in Am Yisrael who were going to do that. However, what's going to happen? Once you go up to the mountain a certain distance, there's only a certain distance that Nadav and Avihu are allowed to go up. Moshe only is, the, is going to be the one to go up fully to the, to the tippy top of the mountain, to the apex of the mountain. Moshe tells the people all of this. We could skip a little bit. Now look what happens. So Moshe and Aharon, in addition to Nadav and Avihu, look at it, and it really is emphasizing them. They're going up the mountain. Is there anything more psychedelic in a sense than this? This is the epitome of what it means to have an experience of God that is mind-blowing. And this, of course, is on a whole new level, a have deal from somebody who takes a mushroom. Below the feet of God, whatever that means. This is one of the most cryptic things in the whole Torah. Kemasil ibnata sapir was the fi- this, the, the, there was this sapphire brickwork under the feet of God. It was like the purity of heaven. What does that mean? We have no idea. We're not at that level to really comprehend the fullness. But very often the color blue is associated with God because you look at the sky, you see the expansiveness of it. This is the best way that the Torah knows how to describe such an experience to the people reading it. Ah, very nice. Erwin, welcome. Mikey, it took me a long time to get on, but I'm happy I'm here. I'm glad you're here too. I got to fill you in afterwards. Well, uh, you'll hang out with me if you want. All right, you got it. All right, Baruch Haba. Right, so we're talking about Nadav and Avihu. They're the children of Aharon. God tells Moshe, only you are going to go to the top of the mountain. Nadav and Avihu, sorry. And all of the rest of the 70 elders, you guys are not going to get to the apex of the mountain. Which means, you're not going to get the level of Nivu'ah. You're not going to get the level of whatever amazing experience that Moshe Rabbeinu got. You're not going to get it. And this is all of the, the background that we need to understand this week's parasha. So they saw God. They had this amazing experience. We don't even know what that means. The sapphire brickwork under the feet of God. What the heck does that mean? And now look at this. Israel. And to the leaders of Bnei Israel, and the word Atzileh means the people that received the spirit of God, or the, that received the spirit of Moshe. When you see later on in the Torah, God says, I'm going to take the spirit of you and I'm going to give it to Yehoshua. The word Atzileh has something to do with people who have divine spirit on them. God did not send his hand against them. He didn't punish them, which kind of implies he, he kind of wanted to. They did something a little bit wrong here. 
They had an experience of God that was so fantastic and so amazing all at once, like we said earlier, going from 0 to 60 in under 3 seconds. Look what they did with this experience. They had this amazing experience, and then the next thing they do is they go eat and drink. The Torah, I think, is, is telling us here that they didn't really get it. This is why they weren't permitted to go to the level that they, that they, were, that they weren't allowed to go to. Only Moshe was permitted to go to that level because they didn't get it. They would go and they would go eat and drink. They're not at the level of Moshe. So the Torah is telling us something I think is very relevant to those of us or those people who want to try psychedelics or who want to do things that are going to make you go from here to there in terms of your spirituality in two seconds. You know, you hear about guys that they start off, they're not religious at all. They don't have any semblance of religion. And then you hear they do it, they flipped, and they went they went crazy black hat, and you know, and then you hear about them the next day, and then they're one side. That's not a way to live. Like Hanambam says, like many people say, you have to find the middle path. You have to find the golden mean. You have to find the place where everything is really in balance, everything in moderation. Alright, so that's what we're seeing here with the children of Aharon, and we're going to see how it's what's going to happen later on. And then Moshe himself only, only you go up to me and receive the luchot of the, the covenant, and you receive the, 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 ten, the ten commandments. And everybody else, you know, if they need if they have a problem, they could go to, to Aharon and Hur. And everybody's watching and they see, now pay attention, God's fire on the, on the, the apex of the mountain was an all-consuming fire. And that's what Nadav and Avihu were seeing, but from a distance. They didn't quite get to see that the same level and the same perspective that Moshe Rabbeinu saw. So that's what happened a few parashiyot ago. Now we're going to skip to last week's parasha, which is our main topic here. And what did we see? We saw what happened. This entire thing over here is just a very lengthy, we don't have time to read through it. But it's a very lengthy um, thing. This is really the apex. We're waiting all these parashiyot. When when are they going to build the Mishkan? When are they going to inaugurate the Mishkan? And the Mishkan is supposed to be a recreation of Har Sinai. Just like at Har Sinai, there were three levels of Kiddushah. So too here with the Mishkan. There's going to be, God is going to appear before the nation. Just like he did at Har Sinai. We had Chet HaEgel in between. We're trying to reestablish an amazing connection with God. So this is like, you know, opening day at Yankee Stadium. This is the most important day in the in the history of the nation other than the experience at Har Sinai. And let's see what happens. So, so Aharon does this entire uh, ritual. He tries to bring the Korbanot. And then we see, right, he, bring, he does a whole lengthy thing. And he does, Bikat And nothing happens. Hazit, Aharon got up there. He did a whole thing. And... There was no reaction from God, unfortunately. And people were thinking, you know, there's whispers going on throughout the congregation. Maybe it's because he brought the Egil. Maybe it's because of this. Maybe it's because of that. Aharon is probably supremely embarrassed. And then what do we see? They go to etam. Now Moshe gets involved because Moshe is the guy. He is the main, you know, Navi of the nation, of course. And then God appears. So what's that? What that's saying is you can't do this without Moshe. You think you Aharon? You think you want to do this without Moshe Rabbeinu? No, no. Just like it was at Har Sinai, he was the guy. 
so too here in the Mishkan, he's the guy. You could bless the nation, you could do a whole bunch of rituals, I'm not going to show myself to the whole nation unless Moshe Rabbeinu is really the main guy. And then what do we see? Look at this word, Vatetzeesh. This is a foreshadowing for the fire that's going to consume Nadav and Avihu. Michael, yes. Michael, I have to add something that you're saying a, a little bit wrong. Please. Moshe Rabbeinu outright says, it's through you, Aharon. And how's the proof? Because the inauguration was on Rosh Chodesh Nisan. Yes. For seven days, Moshe Rabbeinu erected the Mishkan. Seven days, nothing came from Shemayim. It was the echtut of the Torah. And Moshe Beautiful. And Moshe Absolutely. You're 100% right. I love it. You're absolutely right. And thank you for clarifying that. It's, it's, the, it's the combination of the two. You can't have one and you can't have only the other. You have to have both at the same time. Absolutely. And it's a message for generations in B'nai Israel. You can't have just the Kohanim, and you can't just have the Nevi'im, and you can't only have the Melucha, right? There's three branches of government in B'nai Israel throughout history. The king, the Kohen, the priest, and that's the why, Navi. That's why the highest elevation of the Korban is called the Korban Todah. Because every element of B'nai Israel, the Kohanim get a piece, Hashem gets a piece, and the Israel who brings it. Beautiful. It's, that's when we see Hashem's presence is really there, is when there's a... Everyone is participating. Everyone's involved. There has to be a balance. There has to be a balance between everybody. Right? And the same idea of the middle path. You can't have just the voice of the Kohanim. You can't have just the voice of the Nevi'im. Or just the voice of the Melech. Everyone has to be involved. So God's fire comes and it, and it consumes everything from heaven. And everyone goes crazy. Everyone starts singing. They couldn't believe it. This is the first time they've seen God since Har Sinai. And they bow down. You could imagine that this would make a great movie scene. After all this time, all this suspense, is God going to forgive us? Is He going to accept our Teshubah after Heta Egel, after the sin of the golden calf? This really put that to rest. And the people are very happy about this. Now what happens? The children of Aharon, who saw what just happened with their father, they saw, look, Dad just tried to go bring God's presence through all these things. It didn't work. Moshe came, it worked. They said, you know what? We saw what happened at Har Sinai. We experienced that fire from far. We're not going to let that happen again. They said, this time, we're going to get close to God. This time, we're going to sit legends at Yankee Stadium. We're not going to sit in the nosebleeds like last time. We're going to get the Maz at, at legends. We're going to do exactly what we want. And this is to get closer to God. They had good intention. But it seems that their experience, and you could almost call it an, a psychedelic experience, whatever experience they had at Sinai, that according to Harambam was beyond their pay grade, that they should not have had, that really was too much for a person at their level, the, the equivalent of somebody who is not really a spiritual master, who goes on a trip and he takes some, some psychedelic drug, it's the same thing. He's going, he's going above his pay grade. He's not at the level to handle whatever wisdom is coming to him. Beware of wisdom you have not owned. And what do they do? You have not earned. They wanted to recreate the fire that they saw, the consuming fire at the apex of the mountain, that they saw at Har Sinai. They wanted to recreate that, and they brought their own fire. 
and they imposed their own ego where it was not welcomed. Hashem is about the non-ego. You know, Rabbi Solomon Di Sassoon, his whole idea of spirituality is to remove your ego. When a person, and I think it's one of the like the Lubavitcher Rebbe says something like, a person who is so consumed with himself leaves, leaves no room for God. If you're an if you have if you're an egotistical guy, if you're all arrogant, you don't leave any room for God in your life. The second you're like Moshe Rabbeinu, like Uncle Joe, he said, when you anav mikol adam, that's when you're able to really open yourself to Hashem. That's when you're able to be a person that experiences God on a daily basis. And the problem here is that they inserted their own ego into the into the picture here, and their ego said, "Let's bring the fire, and we're going to go be close to God." And it was beyond their pay grade. And then what happens? I should let's see. God never told them to do this. He gave them already the experience that they needed to the degree that they were supposed to have it. They went beyond it, and now they did too much. Just like we saw earlier, right? This that was foreshadowing this one that they got they got consumed instead of now the korbanot being consumed. Unfortunately, the people got consumed. And according to Rashi, right? What happens? The fire goes in their nostrils and it consumes their soul. What is Rashi trying to say? The same neshama that they tried to use to elevate to God earlier, and what they did too much of, that's the neshama that's being consumed by this fire. And it's very tragic. And beautifully, Moshe Rabbeinu immediately consoles Aharon. He said, you know what? Your sons must have been very special people. They got to the level that they got to. Maybe they went a little too far. But God chose them because they're so holy. Because they were on such a holy level. That's why they were the ones to, to show the nation what happens when you go a little bit too far. Right? That's the way I read this. Haron stopped. You know, he was just completely silent. It implies, according to Rashi, that he was crying beforehand. And now, just to, to, to close off this, this idea, and then we'll, we'll discuss a little bit. We see that God commands, Don't drink any alcohol, right? In the same way, don't do any drugs. When you don't, when you're going to the the Mishkan, when you're going to worship me, stop acting like you could just take a drug and, and have this amazing experience, and that's where you're going to see God. That's not the truth. That's not what it's going to be. You have to be very careful when you're going to serve God. You have to have no ego, and don't try to use any mind-altering substances like alcohol or psychedelics and go beyond your pay grade because that's not going to help you. A relationship with God needs to be earned day by day. We learn the same thing from who. From Eliyahu Hanavi, Eliyahu Hanavi did all these miracles to try to convince Ben Israel of who God was. And when it didn't convince Ben Israel who God was, he ran away to the desert because he wanted to die. He couldn't handle that Ben Israel weren't listening. And God shows him these amazing things. He shows him an earthquake and a fire and a stormy wind. And he says, I'm not found in these things. You can't find me in the fireworks. You don't only find me in the sunsets and the walks along the beaches. That's not only where you find God. You find God in the day-to-day dedication. You find God in the small acts, in the, in the good habits that you build, in the love that you build with and your social relationships. If you think you're going to find God on a dime, from 0 to 60 in less than 3 seconds on the other side of a mushroom, you're, you're dead wrong, says God. And now the, the most amazing thing now, Happens, and I think this, and you could disagree with me about the way I'm going to talk about this. First of all, Aharon is told, "Listen, you're the teachers of Bnei Yisrael. You got to teach them the right way. Don't be drunk when you're doing it." And look at what happens here. Um, Moshe Rabbeinu tells tells the remaining children of Aharon exactly which korban to bring and which meat to eat. And what do we see? Very interestingly, Darosh Darash Moshe 
the children of Aharon decided they weren't going to uh, eat from the, the Korban. Right? The remaining children, they said they felt that it wouldn't be respectful to their dead brothers to eat from this Korban. And what did they say? Right? So Moshe Rabbeinu gets very angry. He says, I don't understand. I told you the halacha is you have to eat from this Korban at this specific time. You have to be regular Kohanim even though your brothers died. This is an exception to the rule of Avelut. You have to eat that Korban. And we, we, we see an amazing thing now. Right, what, what does Moshe say? He continues, There was an entire halachic reason behind why they were supposed to eat from this korban. And then what happens? Good. Right? Why don't you do this now? Aharon speaks to Moshe saying as follows. Aharon is stepping in. Because Moshe was yelling at, at Aharon's children. Who is Moshe really yelling at here? It's a way of being respectful to Aharon to not directly yell at Aharon. But he's yelling at the kids. What is he saying? He says, We already brought certain korbanot today, Moshe. And these things happened to me? If I ate from the hatat today, would that be pleasing in God's eyes? If I ate the barbecue today, the day that my children died, would that be pleasing? Aharon is saying, my moral compass is telling me this is not correct. And he says, Moshe, I'm sorry, you know, you're right. You taught me this was the halakha, but I was posseg differently, and I can't do something that goes against my moral compass. And listen, look, look at the way Moshe Rabbeinu responds. Moshe, and Moshe was pleased. I don't know exactly how to interpret this. I would be lying to you if I told you I knew exactly what this, what this means. But one thing I can say is as follows. When Hashem gives us the Torah, when Hashem gives us all these laws, He doesn't want us to get lost in the minutia of the laws. Every detail is important. I'm, uh, that's for sure. Keeping the halakha is the most important thing. It's the thing that's kept our nation together. The halakhot that were made by the hachamim are brilliant. The, the fact that we've stood the test of time with these amazing halachot and with the Torah at our, you know, at our core speaks volumes. It's the thing that's kept us alive. But when you're keeping that, when you're keeping all these mitzvot, don't lose the forest in the trees. That's the biggest thing. If you, if you forget what it means to be moral, if you just follow everything like a robot, and you don't allow your matzpun, as it's called, your inner moral compass to have any voice, you don't express that at all, Hashem is not going to be pleased. And that's why Moshe was pleased with exactly what Aharon did. So just to close off, we began the class talking about different experiments in terms of psychedelics, in terms of a God helmet stimulating the brain to experience God, all these different things that you could do to experience an amazing thing, and what people would call the divine experience. We talked all about that. And then we, we realized, you know, these, these children of Aharon, they had this experience at Har Sinai, they didn't quite get to the level they wanted to, and then they went above their pay grade, and they got burned for it quite, quite literally. And the message that we learn is, if you're a spiritually seeking person, if you're a truth seeker, you're a person who wants to be closer to Hashem, don't try to do that in a day. Don't try to do it on a dime. Do it with the necessary work that it requires. Do it in a way that really is inspiring to you. But you know, don't do it in a way that's just going to be on the other side of a mushroom or through alcohol or through things like that. 
knowing Hashem comes through a daily dedication to the halachot and to living a moral life and through the love that we have in our social relationships. It's through the small thing. And as Hashem tells Eliyahu and Avi, it's in the kol daka. Eliyahu is told by God, I'm not in the fire, I'm not in the ruach, I'm not in this giant stormy wind, I'm not in the earthquake. You're not going to find me in the laser show, says God. You're going to find me in the still small voice. At the end of a long day in the hospital, one day I'm going to be coming home and I'm going to be helping many patients. And I'm going to be saying, wow, I just touched the lives of so many people. That's when I'm going to feel God. I'm not going to feel God if I go and I take a mushroom someday. And uh, and I hope that's the message that, that comes across to you. And if there's any questions about the science that we discussed or about the Torah that we discussed, I would love to hear. Michael. Hazakul Baruch, you were amazing as as usual. I love you. There's two things I want to point out to you that are very intricate to know. Moshe Rabbeinu had to act and receive the Torah copy of all like an angel. And how do we know the proof? Because he went up there for 40 days and 40 nights with no drink and no food. So to receive that once-in-a-lifetime Sefer Torah that we're lucky to have was the penalty of receiving it min shamayim, because he had to fight the angels and all of that that he went through. So Moshe Rabbeinu is on another level altogether. He's on another metrega. Absolutely. So that's one thing. The other thing, and I read this in the Tzibot Shalom that I want to share with you. The problem that they had, the two sons of Aharon, was... When Hashem said, bring a seer, bring a goat, right? And Kippurim, they didn't know, it wasn't Yom Kippur, because on Yom Kippur, Hashem says, bring two goats. One for the Azazel that you're going to throw down the mountain. And then part of the service is the Kippurim that goes into the Kodesh Kodeshim. So I had all two sons were the epitome of the highest level of what they received before Yom Kippur, that service. They triggered it on Rosh Chodesh Nisan. Wow. Two, they preempted it. It wasn't ready. It was supposed to be on the 10th of Tishrei. You understand? Yes. So there, there was. there's so many different opinions about what they did wrong. And I think the thing that ties it all together, you know, uh, Rabbi Ishmael says that they, they got drunk before they brought it. The thing that ties together all the opinions, I think, is that they, they did something that was not asked of them. They wanted a level that they really wasn't for them. That, like you said, it was only for Moshe Rabbeinu. Because Moshe worked on himself for 60 years to reach the level that he reached. And that's why he was worthy of the experience of Nebuah that he got. But Bnei Haron really were not. And I, I really, I, I think that what you, what you said was but spot on. Every person in their own level that they given a gift with a brain, could he hit Moshe's level on their own? Meaning, your level, you're given a certain gift. Good question. So, so Harambam says, Reshut netuna beyad kol adam. Uh, he says, Reshut netuna You could be a sadiq like Moshe. You could be on the level of righteousness of Moshe. Not necessarily, and we know not necessarily, not for sure, at the level of Nebuah. Exactly like you said. Yes. 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 Yes.
But do you know the story? You know the story of Rav Zusia. Rav Zusia, he said on his deathbed to his students, he says, when I get up to Shamayim, Hashem is going to ask me something. He might ask me, he says, Zusia, why were you not like Moshe Rabbeinu? Why didn't you reach his level? And you know what he says? He says, I'll just tell Hashem, I'm not Moshe, I'm Zusia. But if, if he asks me, why were you not the best Zusia you could have been? I wouldn't know what to answer. There's something to be said about each of us were given our own potential. Hashem doesn't ask me to be my father. He doesn't ask my father to be his father. He asks my father to be himself. He asks me to be myself. He asks each of us to fulfill our own unique potential. Hashem knows each of us. That's the greatness of Judaism. That's what the greatness is. Absolutely. Mikey. Yes, I do. So, I didn't catch the, the opening act, but the question is like this. You bring up science and Torah. Where do the, where do, where does the twain meet, and is there a, and where do they do they conflict, and where do where do you now you're you're a rabbi and a doctor where where do you go left or right on a call? Good question. <laughs> what do you mean left or right on a call? No, in other words, all right, you have a patient. Yeah. Has Tim said do this? That's a great one. Uh, you know. So I'll start off like this. I'll say I, I personally don't see any contradiction between the Torah and science. I think the, wow. Rabbi, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs has a brilliant book. It's called The Great Partnership. And he talks about it's something we mentioned in the beginning of the class. You have your right side of your brain and your left side of your brain. Your left side of your brain is very good at taking the big picture and cutting it into small pieces and analyzing it. That's what the left side of the brain is good at. The right side of the brain is good at looking at the small pieces and taking the bigger picture. The left side of the brain is like science. The right side of the brain is like religion. You need both parts of your brain to function as a human being. And it's apples and oranges. So, so, so when it comes to halakha, I'll get to that. But before we mention that, there's something to be said about science is not answering questions of morality. Science is answering questions of what happened and how does it work? Torah is not interested in telling me how does the cell work. The Torah is telling me how do I live my life? How do I worship Olam in this world? How do I fulfill my moral potential in this Olam? And, and science is, is telling me how does something work? So when it comes to, let's say I'm God forbid I'm presented with a situation like you're saying, a patient in the hospital. And the, the Torah says, you know, or, or the Halakha says, you're not allowed to, you know, uh, pull the plug. And, and yeah, and science says you have to pull the plug. I would personally, I, I, first of all, I have to say I'm very humbled by this because I really am not learned enough in, in, uh, in medical ethics and halakha. But hopefully one day I'll be more educated and I'll, I'll learn more about it. But I think there are ways of, of figuring it out. And at worst case scenario... I'll have to turn it over to my colleague and say, listen, I'm not allowed to do this. My religion says I'm not allowed to do this. I'm going to let you take this. I think that's something I might have to do. Right, right. No, I'm just curious to know if one plus one equals three. Oh, yeah. No, science and Torah equals... They're really apples and oranges. Anybody who tells you the Torah is true and science is not true or vice versa is doesn't know what they're saying because they have different purposes. The Torah is not interested in telling me scientific truths. How do I balance them? No, no, no. How you would entertain balancing the two when you become a doctor. Yes, that's exactly it. Is that is that the Torah is going to guide me morally 
and science is going to tell me how does how did Hashem you know create the world in this beautiful way? How does how does the human body work? How does physics work? How does chemistry work? That's that's what science is answering. Nothing to do. In the, and the second one starts encroaching on the territory of the other, you got problems, right? If science tries to tell me how to live a moral life, that's when I got issues. What are you going to use? You're going to use Darwin's theory of evolution to tell me that I should euthanize the old and the sick? No, you would never say that. But, but on the same, on this, by the same token, I'm not going to look in the Torah and I'm not going to say the Torah should be read. And, you know, you see quantum physics in the Torah. I, I don't go for that. I think the Torah has a specific purpose. Hashem gave it to us. That You know, there's a book called How to Read a Book. Rabbi David, I never read it, but Rabbi David Foreman talks about it. How to Read a Book says you can't open up a book unless you know the genre of the book. And, you know, if you, if you open up a dictionary... And you start, so there's a quote, the guy says, I opened up a dictionary and I thought I read a poem about everything, right? The guy opened up the dictionary, he thought it was a poetry book. So he misunderstood the genre. When you open up the Torah, you have to know in advance, the genre of the Torah is not science. The genre of the Torah is moral living. And it's the same thing if I open up a chemistry textbook, I'm not looking for moral living, I'm looking for how does the, that, the, the chemi chemical bonds, how do they form? That's what I'm looking for. I love you. I love your questions and I love your participation. I love you. <laughs> You're the best. The next time I got, we got to get you on on time. I feel bad you couldn't access it. No, they, they wouldn't let me in. Your father let me in. That's so weird. All right, I'm glad. <laughs> Any All questions? Right. Anybody else? Hazaku baruch, guys. Thank you very much. All right. Have a good night. You too. Thank you, Adi.